Hello and welcome to the Highly Strange Podcast. You are here with Sarah Lewis. Hello. Hello. We're sticking with cults. We're going with another cult. Don't think there's any coconuts in this one. Oh, I do apologise. You know, that was so good. <laughs> I'll never look at a coconut the same way. <laughs> How many do you look at? O- often. <laughs> often. You're a regular coconut purchaser. <laughs> I'm a regular coconut admirer. <laughs> From afar. <laughs> ever, Just, since, ever since the incident. <laughs> I wish this was a video podcast <laughs> and that people could see how serious your face just went. I'm good. Yeah, you could. He's been eating coconuts. Oh, he's got... <laughs> you, can't, you shouldn't swallow them whole. <laughs> anyway, so, yes, continuing with cults. We're just going to get straight into it. As a child, picking cotton in the stifling heat of a fork stunk Stockton summer, Terry could not have dreamed that she was to become Dallas' premier metaphysical guru, but she knew she was special. God told her so in the visions. The visions. When she was four years old, relaxing under a shade tree, a coconut fell. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> Three men in splendid robes appeared and told her that she could do or be anything she wanted if she wanted it badly enough. They told her that when she was troubled, she should think about God and they warned her that they could not be seen by many other people, not the boys or girls who ridiculed her or the adults who looked down on her wrong side of the track family or her alcoholic father. She thought about God. She's 44 now and she still thinks about God, but now she does it for a living. Right, this is a name, okay? Terry Lee Benson Wilder Cooley Johnson Hoffman. Call her Terry for short. (laughs) Yes. Once adopted and four times married, grew up to lead what in the early 70s was Dallas's foremost metaphysical study group. Perhaps thousands of followers nationwide bought her correspondence courses. She taught hundreds of Dallasites face to face. Didn't know that people from Dallas were known as Dallasites. Dallasites. Apparently they are. (laughs) Don't want that. So that's what you need to go to the doctor for. <laughs> got a case of the Dallas. I've got a Dallas site, and I uh, can't get rid of it. If you eat this coconut, you'll be yeah. fine. <laughs> Imparting a homebrew mix of Eastern and Western philosophies, with a commonsensical emphasis on balance, perspective, and freedom from drugs—a freedom she could not gain for herself. Her fame spread because what she could do, she had a sweet smile and splendid intuition. And what she said she could do was see the past and future, travel outside her body, communicate with the dead and protect her followers, even from auto accidents and cancer. Yet four of her closest associates died of unexpected deaths. After each had willed an estate to her, their deaths made her at least $500,000 richer and led to one of the longest and strangest probate court trials in Dallas County history. But that was something that she did not foresee. <laughs> so, oh, <laughs> so are we gonna find out the backstory? Yeah, you, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. As she watched, I can never say this word. Tuberculosis slowly killing her mother and thought of God. Why did God take her stillborn sister? Why didn't God give her family enough clothes or food or money? Why did God let the other children act so cruelly and get away with it? The visions returned after the child, now nine years old, entered a Lutheran orphanage in Round Rock. Whenever you are despondent, the free men told her, think about God. They taught her to pray and she had a vision of Christ. She remembers a Lutheran nun, a German woman who told her about the elements, fire, water, earth, air and ether. 
and about well, the... Well, one of them's not real. <laughs> <laughs> and about the Akashic records, which existed only in the spiritual realm. The child could reach them through meditation and they would show her the past, present and future laid out like farmland for an airplane window. The sister also taught her about reincarnation, which seemed like a logical idea. God had not cheated her stillborn sister, who would have another chance at a happier life. Her tormentors at the orphanage, many of them victims of German or Russian depredations in Eastern Europe, would have to suffer through several more lives on earth. The child later would recall that she became convinced at the orphanage that herself was the reincarnation of St Teresa, one of the Roman Catholic Church's most famous mystics. After two years at Round Rock, the child was adopted by a Dallas couple who had lost their natural daughter to tuberculosis. They gave the child a new name, Terry Lee Benson, and the first normal home she had known since her birth in 1938. She was in junior high school when she met a young truck driver named John Wilder, he was 18, 6 foot 1 inches and a high school dropout, earning 85 cents an hour. Wow. Her new mother called him a fug, not good enough for her raven-haired daughter, but Terry felt smothered by her adopted mother's attention. She married John Wilder on May the 2nd, 1953, in Oklahoma, which was the closest place to Dallas that a 15-year-old could get married. Jesus Terry Christ. Terry had been 15 for just over a month. Oh. And he was 18? Yeah. He Six was foot high one. school dropout, yeah. And a goon. A thug. <laughs> thug. Thug with an F. <laughs> thug. Thug. Thug it. <laughs> Their first child, Kathy, was born 18 months later. So that makes her, what, 16 and a half? And yeah, she's had a baby. 16, yeah. 17. A son was born in 1958 and Virginia, their second daughter, in 1963. Terry occupied herself with her children and her gardening. She could boast of grafting several varieties of apples to the same tree trunk. The couple had a farm near Redbird Airport, and those were quiet years. Terry never finished high school, but she yearned to be more than a housewife. Around 1954, she says she started meeting with a group of like-minded friends, meditating and discussing metaphysics, the origin and structure of the universe, the nature of truth and the meaning of existence. As time passed, Terry became more engrossed in the occult. The Wilders moved to a modest three-bedroom house in Farmer's Branch and their life began to fall apart. John Wilder cannot decide what went wrong. Perhaps it began when he paid $1.98 for a mail-order book on hypnotism. Perhaps it was Terry's infatuation with the writings of Edgar Case or her involvement with power of positive thinking groups such as Silver Mind Control Incorporate. Or maybe it was merely her exposure to the wealthy, bored women who met at the Bookhaven Country Club and discussed mystic matters. Terry began to attract a devout circle of admirers within the group. To them, she was far more than a housewife. She was a messenger of God. To some of their children, she was almost a goddess in her own right. Terry recalls that during the late 60s, she helped a young man end his drug habit through meditation and prayer. He begged her to save her power with his friends. She says... So she held weekly evening meditation sessions attended by roughly 20 high school students at a time. Those students got two things that all sensitive adolescents crave, an absolute explanation of how the world works, an uncritical, apparently loving acceptance. Terry charged them nothing for the meditation sessions and steered many of them away from drugs or dangerous diets. In a time of shifting morality and waning religious beliefs, Terry offered them an exotic and all-embracing credo. Balance and perspective were important. The archangels, my, 
Michael in charge of the fire element, Raphael in charge of air, Gabriel of water and Ariel of earth could offer strength and protection. I sound like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> death, her printed lesson said was nothing. The result of noble death is rebirth. The world worked accordingly to the law of karma, which held the ugliness. Begets, is that? Begets? So I thought you said begets. <laughs> yeah, B-E-G-E-T-S. Yes, begets. Okay. It's because I'm thinking of bread in my head. Yeah, though. it's not baguettes. <laughs> baguettes. Baguettes? <laughs> yeah, baguettes. Baguettes. Fucking out. Fuck me. Anyway. Right. <laughs> the world worked according to the law of karma, which held that ugliness begets ugliness and beauty begets beauty. <laughs> Sorry. I can't say We're it. hungry. One who lived a good life would be able to choose the body and environment in which one would be reincarnated. Those who led unhappy lives were paying a karmic debt for past deeds. We can be sure that the people who have been killed in volcanic eruptions and dire catastrophes have deserved these violent deaths, and that they've been reborn in those places to fulfil their destiny. They reaped as they sowed in past lives. If the dogma sounded strange, it was harmless enough, as would her advice. We'd come in and talk about parents and she'd say innocuous things like, well, they have their karmas to work out too, a former Hillcrest High student recalls. One young man who joined the sessions in the 1970 recalls that students who would bring specific meditation mats, usually bath mats or scraps of carpet, to Terry's home in Farmer's Branch. Terry would lead them into meditation, a state much like a hypnotic trance, and tell them they were entering a higher plateau of spiritual development, where they could find the temples of the world's spiritual masters. Christ was a master, so were Buddha, Muhammad and Bahula. Sorry if I've said that wrong. Christ was a cosmic master. He was the master. <laughs> During the meeting, Terry would lead the students on a tour of the temples of the higher realms, astral for the emotions, mental for logic and ether for the highest realm, where the soul itself resided. She would describe the temples as a Washington tour guide, might aid a busload of blind tourists and the students would add descriptive touches as if they, too, were looking at a brick-and-mortar building, which they often thought they were. Whatever they said about the temple they were touring, Terry would agree. Acceptance and love were her bywords and she blessed her followers like a pope. To one girl who spent 1969 and 1970 in our high school group, Terry autographed a wallet-sized photo of herself. So she's like... A full full grown adult at this point in her forties. Yes, and she's like praising these teenagers, just giving them, showering them with love and affection and everything. Yeah, it's quite. She's pre- like running like a youth club, but with obviously an, a, 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 a Jesus twist. Yes, yeah, so yeah. It's um to me, it seems quite predatory. Yeah, no, it definitely is. So yeah. she's getting this following by like loving on all the doting on all these like. Yeah, kids. and she's also like just remembering back to when like she was a teenager, and for her like meeting that guy is then what saved her because he showed her like love and understanding. Do you, do you think at this point she was doing it intentionally to groom the children, or do I, you think it's like an un, uh, like an unintended side effect? I think it's unintended, but yeah. I'm not too sure. Uh, This is what she signed her photograph with. To a sweet and dear friend, may the love, wisdom and power of God be with you. Ten lead you and guide you all of your life, bringing to yourself and others true blessings. Always be an example. Keep God in your heart. Bring him to your mind and then live God all day. I send you peace, joy, love, 
light and harmony. Love always, Terry. Terry instructed her students on their Akashic records. As she said, the Lutheran church woman had instructed her. The records, she told her students, gave her knowledge of the past and future lives and of their love lives. If asked, and who could resist asking, she would look into the records to see whether her students had found their soulmates. Usually they had, but one young couple was devastated to hear that their souls were not right for each other. See, now it's getting a bit like, you know, she, what is she now, like arranging couples? Yeah, she's deciding whether you get to become or stay as a couple. Yeah, see, now it's... Uh... We took that very seriously. We would sit around and talk about it. Well, we love each other, but we're not soulmates, says one girl. Without seeming to brag outright, Terry told her students of her powers. She claimed that she levitated her body in bed one night. Her husband woke up one night and there she was floating above the bed. Oh, there you are. There he she didn't was. know what to do. You know, it's one of those things that happened to me a couple of times. <laughs> she said she could heal the sick with her son, Kenneth, who was on a picnic with one group. He dislocated his thumb so painfully that her students could see the bone straining against the skin. Terry said that she didn't want the boy to see a doctor. She wanted to heal him through meditation. She claimed that she could protect her students from harm. One evening she told a Hillcrest High School student that his girlfriend was due to die in a car accident. Only an emergency meditation session could save her. After the session, Terry smiled serenely. The accident has been averted. Oh, thank God. That was definitely going to happen. Even death did not render Terry powerless. After Jimi Hendrix's demise, she told the group that his soul needed a boost to reach a higher plane. Jimmy's drug use had brought him bad karma, but he deserved better because he had made beautiful music. The group meditated, and a beautiful look swept over Terry's face. Jimmy's in the room, she said. <laughs> Can't you hear him? <laughs> Nor thanks to the Akashic Records was Terry phased. By death occurring, occurring centuries ago, she would turn off the room lights and have a student hold a piece of tinted plastic in front of his face. Then she would shine a flash flashlight on his features. There, now everyone can see that. Billy or Alan or Jimmy or Cindy or Susie. <laughs> what year is this now? Uh, what, when did Jimi Hendrix die? It must have been early 70s. Yeah. Sem yeah, it must have been then. Gradually, those episodes plus Terry's innocuous interest in material goods turned her students into sceptics. She would leave, but others would take their places. John Wilder, who never believed in her powers in the first place, says her behaviour also led to the dissolution of the Wilder household. Wilder says he couldn't go along with the idea of breaking up teenage romances because they weren't soulmates, and Terry's work with adults was becoming a point of contention. She was selling lessons in spiritual development, mostly borrowed from established religions and from other authors. By the late 60s, she had started a group called Conscious Development of Body, Mind and Soul, and she was accepting love offerings for the lessons and her private consultations. Sometimes the love offerings would amount to $50 or $100. It was a little hard to take, Wilder would say later. Do you think at this point that she, from going doing it innocently, realised, hang on a minute, I can probably make a few... Yeah, I feel like... When it was just the teenagers, it was kind of unintentional, but it sparked her to be like, there's a real selling point here. Yeah. And these people are like hanging off my every word and I can make them believe that Jimi Hendrix is in the room. I find it interesting that um, her husband weren't going along with it. Ooh. To be fair, that's quite unusual. I do think, though, the big thing that the husband didn't like it, because he referenced quite a lot that she earned more money than him. Yeah. Um. 
So I don't doubt that he probably didn't believe it, but I don't actually think that's what bothered him. I don't think he was bothered that she was, like, conning people. I think she... You know, this was an era where the husband provided and the wife should have been a housewife, and it upset him that she was earning more. Because she was making... He, like, quotes in it that she was making, like, $100 a reading and he was making, like, $100 a week. Yeah. So, obviously, if she did, like, five readings a week, she was out earning him, like, five times. If Kate started a cult and was bringing in the money, I'd be like, where are the robes? (laughs) (laughs) Grab me the coconuts. (laughs) Let's go. (laughs) Equally hard to stomach were some of Terry's disciples who followed her like puppies. Sandra Cleaver was one. Wilder remembers Sandy telling him that she thought of Terry as Jesus. Sorry, just to follow, her name is Sandra, but she gets called Sandy. I'm also, I'm going to be honest, like every time you say Terry, I must be really hungry because all I'm thinking about is chocolate Terry's orange. Chocolate, chocolate orange, <laughs> which I don't think exists in America. Uh, if it helps, it's spelled T-E-R-R-I. <laughs> oh, okay, so it's not spelled the same way. Okay, I've totally disregarded it now. There you then. go. <laughs> Wilder remembers Sandy telling him that she thought of Terry as Jesus. He also remembers Sandy giving Terry a tremendous amount of jewellery, a necklace, a bracelet, rings. He told Sandy to take the jewellery back and she got on her knees and begged me to let her have it, as in Terry have it. And there was Glenn Cooley, a student at North Texas State University who always tried to sit next to Terry at the meetings so he could hold her hand during meditation sessions. Terry says her husband's unfounded jealousy of Glenn drove him to distraction and her to court. Terry filed for divorce on December 28, 1970. Soon she was taken by sheriff's deputies to Parkland Hospital for a psychiatric evaluation. Wilder and her mother had signed the committal papers. She was released and insists that the doctor at Parkland decided I was fine. But in the subsequent divorce, she lost custody of her young son and daughter. Under the divorce decree granted on March 23, 1971, Terry gained custody of her teenage daughter. Her 1978 Mustang an assortment of socks, a shotgun, a rifle and a pistol. John Wilder kept the house, the two youngest children, the furniture and the family bank accounts. Within months, Terry, then 33, had married Glenn Cooley, who had just turned 20. They went to New Mexico for the ceremony, accompanied by Sandy Cleaver. They then returned to Dallas, bought a house at 4163 Dunhaven Drive and began revising and expanding the conscious development literature. Terry, like a missionary, wanted the world to know that she had the answers. And Sandra had the questions. Sandra was in many ways Terry's mirror image. Terry was plump while Sandy was slender. Terry grew up poor. Sandy, for a skip generation trust, benefited from the inherited wealth of the Beatty and Roden families of Alabama. Terry never graduated from high school, but grew up streetwise. Sandy grew up naive, but attended an exclusive girls' school and graduated in three and a half years from DePaul University in Indiana. She took a double major and earned nothing but A's and B's. And yet the women had much in common. Terry's mother died of tuberculosis. Sandy was in a mental hospital by 1951. When Sandy was 12, one of Terry's sisters died at birth. Sandy's sister, Susan Devereux, died in an auto accident in 1961 at the age of 17. Both were interested in the mystical powers of jewellery and in all things metaphysical. Terry's marriage with John Wilder was on the rocks, so was Sandy's life with Chuck Cleaver. Sandy had met Chuck Cleaver at DePaul. Chuck was hard not to notice. He played centre-back for the school basketball team. He and Sandy were a good match, both thin, good-looking, quiet, serious and intelligent. 
Sandy's intensity played well against Chuck's easygoing manner. They married fresh out of college in 1960 and settled in Dallas, in Manning Lane. Neighbours talked about dinners at the Cleavers, where they were less likely to discuss sports or the weather than to analyse a popular book or song. I remember one night we were over there and we talked about the song Look What They've Done To My Song, says one neighbour. Looking back, that's pretty poignant. Sounds like a laugh, right? <laughs> In 1964, they had a daughter who they named Susan Devereux Cleaver in memory of Sandy's sister. They were spending a good bit of Sandy's money. It would be years before Chuck got the kind of high power job that his neighbours felt his ability merited. But Sandy had money to spare. She also had excess energy, which she burned off on community and church projects. But in 1966, Sandy's father died. He had retired from an engineering professorship at Purdue University and was piloting a single-engine beechcraft on its final landing approach when the engine failed. Sandy told Chuck she wished she could have spoken with her father one last time. There were so many loose ends. Over the next few years, Sandy became a student of the supernatural. She was restless and no longer content to be, me to be merely Mrs Chuck Cleaver. Having no mother except her maid, Louise Watson, to whom she sent flowers to on Mother's Day, she was insecure about her ability to mother Devereux, Troubled by the deaths of her loved ones, she was not comforted by the traditional church. Sandy embarked on her own spiritual search in the midst of an age of Aquarius mysticism in the late 60s. And Sandy was captivated by most of the fads. She read Edgar Case, The Sleeping Prophet. She read an autobiography of a yogi. She began to attend meditation and treatment sessions hosted by a plumber. <laughs> <laughs> she took up silver mind control vegetarianism and homeopathic medicine she... crazy vegetarianism <laughs> i suppose back in the day that was it a probably like, was yeah. yeah she believed that certain jewels possessed healing properties and fearful of letting herself go unshielded by her gems she would wear several bracelets and necklace plus roughly 14 rings even in the shower sandy's mystic friends were seeing a homeopathic doctor who from the legal haven of mexico would diagnose their illnesses over the cosmic airwaves and prescribe homeopathic pills to cure them. The pills shipped to Sandy via a greyhound bus filled an entire kitchen cabinet. Sandy would take 20 of them a day, which worried Chuck. Then she began to talk about the doctor's prescriptions for six-year-old Devereux, which terrified him. He took the pills to a medical doctor who found them to be mere placebos. It's not what in the pills that you have to be concerned about, the doctor told him. What you need to be concerned about is a young, impressionable girl and the psychological implication that, first, there is something seriously wrong with her, and second, that you solve it by popping pills. One afternoon, Chuck came home to find Sandy and Devereux heading out of the house, suitcases packed. Sandy was holding two plane tickets to San Diego. She wanted to take Devereux to a homeopath so she could put her in a special machine that tuned out all the world's bad vibrations. Chuck grabbed Sandy by her shoulders and shook her. No, absolutely not. Over my dead body. It was as close as he ever came to physical violence. He didn't think that Sandy was trying to hurt their child. Throughout her life, she seemed to want whatever was best for her family and friends. But now Sandy believed conventional medical doctors were quacks, unable to cure what really ailed her. One night, Chuck found Devereux's bedsheets damp with her own sweat. She was hot to the touch. Chuck wanted to take her to a paediatrician. Sandy wanted to treat her with meditation, incantations and incense. Chuck insisted over my dead body. Sandy replied, I'm not taking her to the doctors anymore. Chuck lay awake until 5am. 
scooped Devereaux out of bed and quietly bundled her into the back seat of his car. They drove around North Dallas for two hours until he woke Devereaux's paediatrician. She had scarlet fever. From that morning, Chuck knew that he was staying at home purely to be near Devereaux, who became something to fight over. During one argument, Sandy waved a butcher knife around the kitchen and said, sometimes I think Devereaux would be better off in heaven. Fucking hell. Devereaux was not the only thing that drove them apart. There was Sandy's new friend, Terry. Chuck thought she was a phony. He didn't want Devereaux visiting her house. Terry and John Wilder sometimes argued violently and they had a large gun collection. Chuck begged Sandy not to help herself or Devereux into conscious development. I really have to help Devereux overcome all the problems that are caused by your bad vibrations and your bad feelings about Terry, she replied. I'm starting to see there's a crossover coming up. Mm-hmm. We're, we're coming towards a crossroads. Sandy had only good feelings about Terry. She told Chuck that her new friend was St. Teresa reincarnated, that Terry could diagnose illnesses over great distances and that with the proper jewellery, which Sandy could supply, Terry could help cure even cancer. Terry could put a protective shield around Devereux, Sandy said. A shield Terry had promised would be strong enough to save her from anything, except the negative vibrations from your husband, which are very powerful. When Chuck complained about Devereux's wife, Sandy told him all their problems stemmed from his negative thoughts. Thoughts that strong, she said, could actually produce bacteria and viruses that would infect her daughter. I believe that is true. (laughs) but i'm not a doctor (laughs) well effectively what she's saying there stress can cause illness which is true true, yeah but i don't know if it produces bacteria no i don't know but high tension and high stress can obviously make you unwell Mm -hmm. sandy wrote terry a check for three thousand dollars and chuck complained but he didn't leave the house sandy attending a dinner party announced that she would turn the wine back into grape juice Chuck didn't even complain. He held his tongue when Sandy announced that she was a former high priestess of Atlantis. And when she told Excuse the family... <laughs> Sorry, what? <laughs> you heard. <laughs> that's the first time that's been mentioned. <laughs> and when she told a family friend that they were compatible because in a previous life they'd been married, the stranger Sandy got, the closer Chuck stayed to home. In December of 1970, Sandy told Chuck that Terry was divorcing her husband because he was impeding her spiritual growth. On April 22nd, 1971, Sandy told Chuck that she had filed for divorce. You are impeding my spiritual growth, she told him. Their breakup was not tidy. Devereux became the object of a bitter custody fight, with Sandy begging neighbours to write letters saying she was a competent mother and giving them detailed accounts of what she said were flaws in Chuck's character. Chuck, meanwhile, was compiling a list of Sandy's forays into the metaphysical, It ran from astral projection to witchcraft and he was telling his lawyers about the late evening calls from the neighbours, puzzled that Sandy, who had dropped Devereux off at their house before a conscious development meeting, had never returned to pick her child up. It's customary for the County Juvenile Welfare Office to investigate the parents in child custody cases and to make a recommendation to the divorce judge. Parents are not allowed to see that report, but the lawyers are. Chuck said that before the scheduled custody trial, he met with his lawyer and with Sandy's lawyer, both men. He recalls, told him that he stood an excellent chance of winning, but that if he got custody, Sandy might well kill Devereux. The two lawyers, Sandy was not at the meeting, advised him to settle for visitation privileges. Chuck agreed, then went to the home of his friend and drank. Though Terry later would claim that Chuck was after Sandy's money, lawyers for both sides say money was the last thing on Chuck's mind. 
Under the divorce agreement, all Chuck kept of the marital estate was a 1971 Mercedes and his personal property. One thing he insisted upon was a provision in the divorce settlement saying that Sandy would have Devereux treated by only recognised physicians admitted to a practice in Texas. That seems like it's almost entirely unenforceable. Yeah, I mean, you could obviously like have it as a recommendation, but I feel like it's about as useful as like a... Um, oh, God, I can't remember the word. A... What's when you like don't want someone to come near you? A restraining yeah. order. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like at the end of the day, it's just a piece of paper. People can do what they want and break it. Yeah. While the divorce was pending, Sandy paid for her Hawaiian honeymoon trip for Terry and Glenn. She went with them. Weird. <laughs> I didn't mean like, can I come on your honeymoon? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Taking Devereux along for the ride, despite a court order not to remove her from the state. After the divorce, Sandy and Terry became practically inseparable. Sandy helped Terry and Glenn make the jewellery that supported them. Her kitchen table was covered with jewellery-making tools. Terry would sell some of their wares to conscious development members. I think this ring is just right for your energies. But their work was good enough to, to sell at craft fairs throughout the state. Often Sandy went on those trips, leaving Devereux in the care of Louis Watson, known to friends as Wheezy. Sandy would meditate for hours with Terry and help write the lessons. Terry was selling under the conscious development name. She bought the group a printing press, which she installed in her home. She was far more than Mrs Chuck Cleaver now. She was founding a new religious movement. Conscious development was the hottest thing in the Dallas metaphysical community, maybe even in the Southwest. It was attracting serious, good-hearted people who wanted to become better in some way, who wanted to explore the aspects of the world in themselves, which the physical sciences could not explain. Some joined purely because of Terry's charisma and knack of knowing what was important to people, but many had a crying need for something, balm for the pain of losing a loved one, help in dealing with a crippled body, or merely the warmth and loyalty of a tight-knit group. I think I'm going to stop there, actually. Yeah. And that can be part one, because we're just... That's kind of the background of how Terry and Sandy... Yeah. Um, ...become a little force of nature. And then we need to start introducing new characters. So we shall do that to next week. But that's the beginning. There kind of, by the way, isn't much of a like actual name for this cult. Um, a lot of people just refer to them as the Dallas cult. Um, what's it, conscious? Yeah, so they Some do get known as... Conscious development. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of what that's they're the selling. That's the branding. Yeah. yeah. That's the name. So, yeah. So that that's the information heavy bit of the background of the individuals. So and then we'll get up, into... To sum up, yes. we've got this woman, Terry, bad childhood, set up yep. this cult, essentially, or this service, rather, mm -hmm. giving children and people readings and that. In meanwhile, somewhere else, this sandy woman was also interested in the. Effectively, what you have now is a dangerous woman with an idea. Yeah. Who has had a bad childhood and kind of knows. Can give what can be perceived as empathy to other people's problems because she's been through a hard time herself. And then what you have now is a woman with a shitload of money that's joined on the bandwagon. Yeah. So. You can probably it guess where we're going. Like it's gonna go well. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's where we're leaving it. And obviously, she's got her away. Both of the men that didn't believe in the 
ideologies of it all are now so, out of the picture. So now it's just two strong, independent women yes. against the world. Yes, and one with some batshit ideas and <laughs> one with a shit ton of money. Fantastic. Yes. I'm looking forward to hearing the conclusion. Yeah, that's sure why it, it was well. kind of... I know that probably felt really information-heavy, but it's kind of important to know the background of both of them. To It's rare for this podcast. Go where we're going. To yeah. be information-heavy. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> normally just talk about coconuts. Yeah, normally it's... <laughs> <laughs> it's coconuts and cheese. And yeah. <laughs> holes. <laughs> yeah, Japanese... Eggplants. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so uh, you could probably imagine where we're going, but we will do a little two-parter. So we'll pick up on next week for I'm you. Very excited. When was the last time we did a two-parter? Is this your first two-parter? No, dear David was two. Oh, parts, dear wasn't David, it? yeah. But that was like episode five. No, or dear David was one part. Oh, we did, did we do all it all in one, one in the go, end. Yeah. Oh, maybe I haven't done a two-part then. No, I think this you've is done a two-part, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, I've done a couple. I can't remember what any of them were. I think you have done one. Sorry, listeners, while we forget what we've actually done over the last Genuinely year. Genuinely going to open up Spotify now and have a look, um, can't you? While we open up Spotify, you could also look and give us five stars. <laughs> I'll try. <laughs> nope, we did the Moffat family haunting. That was ah, a two-parter. Part one, part two. There you go. So, my second two-parter then, because you're right, we did get Dear David. Somehow we crammed that all into one. We was like, oh, just keep going, please. <laughs> <laughs> please, we're almost there. <laughs> but no, so we shall pick up next week and find out where Sandy and Terry are going with their money and little plans. Little adventure. Their little business enterprise. Yes. It kind of, on the surface, it's like, oh, they're just making jewellery, that's nice. Yeah. <laughs> Never trust a woman. Do you know what the worst bit Etsy is? Store. Is if I'd have been alive in the seventies, I would definitely fallen for it and purchased some of that jewelry. If hundred percent. If this happened now, this wouldn't be a cult. They'd just set up an Etsy store. Yeah, yeah. So like, how this ends wouldn't end the same way. Yeah, I imagine so. Yeah, pretty much. Or they'd be like at the fair that we went to at Whitstable Castle. They'd be there just with what a little was stool. The five G protecting crystal. Yeah. Really. <laughs> God, that was weird. <laughs> Everything was so nice at that event. And the worst bit is, is it was right at the top of the castle. So it was like the last stall you saw. So you walked through and you were like, this is lovely. Like this person's making homemade tea and this person's got little paintings and this person's just selling their crystals. <laughs> and then it was like, protection from 5G. <laughs> it was like, ah, Okay. <laughs> well, thankfully, we're now surrounded by five G. Yeah, obviously, crystals. I bought like twelve. My phone doesn't work. <laughs> My phone doesn't work quite as well as it did before. Cause I, but I mean, <laughs> I didn't buy any. But they put them in like little pyramids. So oh, they, I mean, they aestheticly they looked really nice. But I wasn't buying you something. Strap it to your head or something. No, you just like leave it in your room. I think the idea the is 5G. it would absorb it. Yeah. What like a condensation thing? I don't know. <laughs> It just absorbs the energy for you so that you don't absorb it. It doesn't absorb radio waves. Well, no, that's the point. It doesn't work either way, but... (laughs) Anyway. They cook lasagna, you know. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great video. That guy did so much damage to this society, though, from his prank. It's unbelievable how a joke can go too far. Anyway. Anyway, sorry. Do we want to do recommendations? I don't know who I'd recommend that to. Well, anyone that owns like a crystal pendant necklace like I do. 
because yes. you would have been there with me buying them from Terry. I imagine quite a few of our listeners probably own that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Got enough for probably all of our listeners in my flat. Yes, and the rest. <laughs> for you to all have one. I can start my own cult. <laughs> oh, God. That is where this podcast ends. Yeah, I'm actually just looking for ideas by covering cults. I'm like, right, Gage Lulu's reaction. Okay, yep. that's too far. But he's that in works. it for the money. It's fine. He wants money. He doesn't want the murder. <laughs> You can find us at A Highly Strange Pod on Instagram, Facebook. Follow us. Um, leave us reviews. A written review on Apple is hugely influential towards the algorithm. It's heavily based towards Apple Podcasts, so send your reviews that way. But also on Spotify and anywhere else. Have a lovely week. We'll see you next week. We'll see you later. Bye. Bye.